Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In 2016, more people died from drug overdoses in the U.S. than the total number of Americans killed in the Vietnam War. In Indiana, opioid overdose deaths rose 52% between 2015 and 2016 and have more than doubled in the last three years. Across the state, people have been overdosing on opioid painkillers and heroin and flooding hospital emergency rooms. More than 1,000 Hoosiers a year were dying from overdoses. And this raised many questions for the state, including how should Indiana fight the scourge? Where should it put new treatment programs or law enforcement resources? And how much naloxone, the medicine that reverses the effects of opioid overdoses, should the emergency responders carry? To help officials find the answers to these and other questions, they're using big data in Indiana. And today, we're going to talk about the officials that are finding the answers to these and other questions. Um, And joining us today is Darshan Shaw, who is the Chief Data Officer of the State of Indiana, as well as Doug Huntsinger, who is the Special Assistant for Drug Prevention, Treatment, and Enforcement, to learn about this new and innovative program that's helping them fight the opioid epidemic. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Okay. So let's start off by just telling us what you've witnessed in the state of Indiana as far as the opioid epidemic is concerned and its impact on your state. So, Greg, we've seen um, our overdose death rates. uh, We're about 15th highest in the nation. Uh, In 2016, we had 757 overdoses related to opioids. Um, We're estimating that the state of Indiana is spending uh, over $100 million dollars uh, in our operations uh, to fight the epidemic. Um, I've heard everything that, uh, that uh, the United States, this is a $193 billion uh, problem. Um, and, and for us, this is uh, one of the governor's highest priorities. So, um, so fighting the epidemic is, is something that, um, that here in Indiana, we've, um, we, the governor has appointed uh, Jim McClelland, our executive director for drug prevention, treatment and enforcement. And uh, it's his, his job to coordinate and align 
and uh, the relevant resources of the state. And um, that's that's what we're doing. I mean, that's what this big data project is really all about. So tell us a little bit about that, because you've begun to develop and implement this data-driven system that's focused on substance abuse prevention, early intervention, treatment, recovery, and enforcement that substantially uh, is going to reduce the prevalence of substance use disorder and hopefully help those uh, find recovery. So let's talk a little bit about how this initiative began. Yeah, so in, um, in May, uh, our, our office uh, released a strategic plan on how we're going to fight the opioid epidemic. And it, it really gets to, um, uh, to, to four things, and, and that is harm reduction, access to treatment, uh, stopping the supply, and, uh, and prevention. And as we go through all the, uh, all the tactics of, of how we go about executing that plan, uh, the, the first thing you'll notice is data is uh, very prevalent in each one of those. And, and through that, we engaged uh, Darshan and his group at the Metrics Performance Hub uh, to help us uh, collect data, uh, analyze that data, and, and then ultimately use that data to help us make decisions. And I'll kick it over to Darshan to explain more about that. Yeah. <clears throat> Greg, thanks for having me. And Doug, um, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you and Jim on, on this project, um, which was um, which it wasn't based on the, the, the results that are coming from, you know, drugs across the state of Indiana. Um, however, um, I think the effort that we've been able to put together collectively has been a really good one. When thinking about how this initiative began, I think it's helpful to work, kind of go backwards a little bit to understand how the Management Performance Hub was actually established in the first place and how it came to inception to be able to do some of the work that we're getting the opportunity to do now. Um, if you go all the way back to... Um, Governor Daniels and his administration back in 2005. On the first day of, in office, he, he signed a number of executive orders, um, but in particular, he signed an executive order to establish the IOT, which is the Indian Office of Technology, um, which consolidated technology across the state. And then he also signed um, another executive order, which established the OMB, which is the Office of Management and Budget, to basically cannot, uh, consolidate financial management across the state. Underneath OMB, there was a group called GEFP. I know this is a lot of acronyms, but the GEFP stands for Government Efficiency and Financial Planning. And that group was basically set forth and established to basically drive um, efficiencies and improve state government. So fast forwarding to 2013, Governor Pence took office, and he made a number of key investments in technology in order to be able to help with um, driving better decisions through data. And then fast forwarding once again to 2017, um, as Doug mentioned, um, you know, when, uh, when Governor Holcomb took office, he established the, the role of the Executive Director for Drug Prevention, Treatment, and Enforcement in place, you know, established um, Jim McClellan in that role. Um, and then if you kind of work forward, there was a, um, in the legislature this past, past spring, there was House Bill 1470, which formally codified the Management Performance Hub into state law, which formally, you know, I, you know, codified the concept of data-driven decision making, and I'm truly, you know, across the entire state. So, with that in mind, I, I think that background is maybe a little bit helpful because it also kind of feeds into, you know, how this broader initiative began, um, looking at the foundations of the organization. So, at the core of it, 
um, once you dig into all of the data that you're combining, you've got data from 16 different agencies that's all separate and all you know, divided across many different agencies that are serving the state, all of them having a different view of the opioid epidemic. So how did you begin kind of getting your arms around that and getting everyone to open up and play together, so to speak? The important thing to note is that agencies were interested in collaborating. There just wasn't a really good platform to be able to enable that data sharing and collaboration, and that's really where MPH comes in. So we were able to, you know, work with the different agencies um, to be able to help them understand What's their end goal in mind? What are those key outcomes that they're looking to drive? And then work our way backwards to be able to determine, you know, what's the data? What's the analysis? What's the visualizations? What's the tools? What's the, the applications that are going to be necessary to be able to help drive those kind of key outcomes? Um, we call those user stories, and it allows us to be able to focus our initiatives to be able to ensure that we're able to, the work that MPH is doing in conjunction with all the state agencies is truly going to be supportive of the great work that the agencies are doing. Um, and then the last thing I maybe mention here is we also established um, collectively with, with Jim and Doug's team this drug data working group. And the nice thing about the drug data working group is we met on a periodic basis in order to be able to um, share best practices, be able to understand the broader domain, be able to understand the biggest challenges and to be able to make sure that we kept everyone engaged you know, as we went through this process. And, and that's been a, a broad team-based effort that's been very, very productive. Today, through your online opioid data center, police departments, hospitals, pharmacies, mental health agencies, and many others contribute data to enable policymakers to see the big picture. Um, the database includes drug arrests, drug seizures, death records, pharmacy robberies, overdose-related ambulance calls, and instances of Narcan use. So share with us some of the practical uses of that data that have evolved through your program. Well, I'm happy to kind of start this off, and I'm sure Doug's got a number of key examples as well, um, seeing that the outcomes are really driven by the agencies and the key, you know, customers, if you will, of this data. Um, I, I, I'd like to start maybe big picture and then kind of work our way down to a, a specific, you know, um, kind of use case. But Great. The, from, from, my, from, I would say the, the largest benefit thus far has been around the ability to create that data platform to enable that cross-entity data sharing. Um, by being able to create that platform, we're able to create that foundation by which all the data was able to come into and be able to share it among the different groups is you don't always realize which data points and which view and which window is going to be the most beneficial to be able to target specific problems. Um, so once that cross-entity data sharing was established, the individual agencies had a more comprehensive view of the problem. Of the problem. So instead of seeing that this is where people were dying and this is where people were overdosing and this is where drugs were being seized and this is where naloxone was being deployed, et cetera. All the agencies were able to collectively see all of that information in order to be able to make this, you know, better decisions. Um, so to narrow that down to a, a specific example, um, the state of Indiana was um, commissioned the establishment of five new drug treatment, um, opioid treatment facilities. And Basically, um, the agency that was, that was designated to do this was the Department of Mental Health and Addiction, which is under our FSSA, which is our social services agency. DMHA, for short, they were looking for 
the best locations to place those five facilities in order to be able to make the greatest impact across the state. And by being able to pull together this data from all of these relevant sources, they were able to um, you know, triangulate where the best places were across the state in order to limit the amount of travel, be able to make sure that we were able to place these facilities in locations where the most number of deaths and overdoses and, and other components you know, were, were established in order to be able to, uh, be able to make the largest impact. Um, and that's just one example, but there's 30 or 40 additional use cases that have been established by this broader group that all have those similar types of impacts. But Doug, I think you probably have a number, a few more. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the areas where um, people people always think about it's about the data you have, and and I think one of the great things is is we've been able to identify the the data that we do not have um, through. Uh, through some work um, that had kind of been the groundwork that had been laid a little bit before we got here, um, the state was already in the process of, of working toward um, some integration in our PMP, um, or which we call INSPECT. And, and we were able to accelerate that process of integrating um, our INSPECT program into EHRs and, and into pharmacies, uh, into their workflow programs. And um, that, that, is, that is a direct result of us uh, recognizing that we weren't getting uh, complete data uh, and that we then weren't able to turn that data around and, and give it to the end user uh, in, a, in a manageable and informative way. So is there anything else about the program that it's enabled you to do and to address relating to the opioid epidemic where you other, otherwise wouldn't have been able to? Yeah, so when we talk about uh, access to naloxone, uh, the data that uh, has been collected helps us understand where that naloxone is being deployed, uh, and then we can match that up with uh, records being collected um, through hospital um, diagnoses codes uh, to, to start trying to identify where, where people are overdosing, and then are those that overdose, are they ending up um, in, in the hospital? It also then, that then helps us look at where um, we have created, uh, for, for lack of a better term, we've created stockpiles of naloxone around the state so that um, if, if a police department or um, EMS um, or a health department find themselves uh, low or out of naloxone, they can, um, they can call the Department of Health or the state police and uh, we, can, we can very quickly, uh, with, usually within a couple hours, um, replenish their supply. Wow. How close to real time is your inventory there? Uh, inventory is, uh, at, our, at our stockpiles is, is real time. Um, inventory within the state is, uh, is a little bit more difficult. Uh, we, we have a decent idea of who is administering naloxone and we have even less of an idea of when are they administering it. Uh, so, so there are still some reporting challenges, but um, we, from a state standpoint, um, we, we do have very good reporting when a state police officer, a conservation officer, uh, or, or any one of our um, Department of Health um, officials are, are administering naloxone. 
Yeah, with all the fentanyl out there also, your supplies of uh, naloxone, just like in our state, I'm sure, in pockets of the state, the supplies just dwindle very quickly. So the uh, the value of having this information readily available and be able to move inventory from one area of your state to another, is that's going to save a lot of lives. Absolutely. As we travel around, uh, we constantly hear that uh, it's you know, it used to take uh, uh, two doses. Uh, you know, it's now taking four to revive people. And we're actually starting to see that be reflected in the data, which is, which is also a huge uh, value to this project is we're, when we're out there talking to people, the perception is not always the, the reality. And, and this allows us to come back to the office, uh, look at the data, and, and then challenge sometimes people's perceptions of, of what might be going on. So from uh, going back to the way that the system works, from a practical perspective and call it from a layman's perspective, you're getting data feeds from all these disparate systems. You're combining them into a database, and then you're coming up with dashboards to view and slice and dice it and look at it for various applications. That's absolutely correct. Perfect. So any surprises that big data has helped you uncover, gentlemen? I would say a number of the key kind of use cases that we mentioned, you know, a moment ago with Inspect, and I really like what Doug touched on a moment ago regarding the data we don't have. I think that's a really key component is that you try to pull this data together, you think you always have the best data, and then you start to realize where there are pockets where you don't have information, and you need to be able to work upstream and work with the agencies to be able to improve the overall collection methods. Um, so that's a, that's a key component. Yeah, the, one of the one of the biggest things that I, I was maybe surprised by was uh, just how eager all the agencies were to to share and collaborate um, on all of this. We have um, uh, we have some agencies where they are prohibited from sharing data within from within uh, different departments. You know, there's all these federal uh, there's you know then there's state regulations around who can access the data, what can be released publicly, what is uh, internal data only. And, and when we talk about internal data, then we start talking about um, internal data that, that maybe I myself, uh, as, a, as a member of the governor's team, aren't able to access uh, because state law only allows the agency and, and the people who are directly interfacing with that data the ability to, to look at it. So it's, it's one, it's helped us identify these challenges, but it also has helped the agencies really get together and figure out uh, how they can share uh, and, and how we can use, use these, these big data ideas uh, to solve sometimes fairly complex logistic issues around how do, we, how do we access and how do we share. So it seems to me that figuring out and overcoming those situations where maybe legally you're not supposed to share. Um, that had to be one of the biggest hurdles that you had to overcome. So, you know, one thing that I think of when it comes to sharing healthcare information in particular is HIPAA, right? You've got HIPAA laws. Mm -hmm. So can you speak uh, a little bit to that and how you were able to overcome that uh, beyond maybe working directly agency by agency so that you could get access to all of the data that you required? Now, happy to touch on that. <clears throat> so with this broader group, um, there were, you know, 17 agencies that came together, and there was a formal memorandum of understanding that was established between um, all of these groups to be able to share information between each other, um, realizing that this information is not leaving the confines of state government. 
is staying within the state government, um, being able to determine, you know, what can, what cannot be shared. Each of these agencies has their has their individual councils and be able to bring those councils together to be able to determine what can and what cannot be shared and how to work through any of the legal impediments um, were obviously critical to this, you know, when we started. Um, and then with that in mind, there's obviously, there continues to be certain state and, well, not so much state, but more federal restrictions that limit the ability to be able to share some data. And those are things that we continue to work with, you know, some of the folks even in DC to be able to determine if there are opportunities to be able to, um, adjust those laws in order to be able to help share data more effectively between state agencies. So can you give us any usage statistics now that the program has been in place for more than six months? Yeah, so the uh, Next Level Recovery website has had over 15,000 views and the data page, uh, which which is showing the metrics that we're displaying, has seen over 4,200 individual views. Wow. So it's really starting to take off, it would sound like. That sounds like pretty high usage. It is, and uh, we, we only launched the website about a month ago. So what advice would you give to other states on launching a similar program, gentlemen? When you're establishing a program like this, I mean, first and foremost, executive support is going to be critical. Um, getting that, that support from your governor and from key agencies across your state is going to be absolutely critical to being able to get this off the ground. I would kind of expand that by saying that once you are able to get that support and you're able to bring together the right group together for for your working group, um, it's going to be really critical to be able to build um, consensus, um, but you have to make sure you're patient to do so. It may seem faster to be able to push through and drive with brute force, but in the long run, that's not actually going to create a benefit for the broader project. Um, I'd probably continue by saying that uh, the the MPH, you know, as, as we have it here in the state of Indiana, um, the key thing for MPH is to make sure that we're clearly seen as an agency to serve. We're not trying to take anything over. We're simply an enabler and a supporter of all the great things that agencies are doing. We have no service providers. I have no police officers or caseworkers or anyone that works for MPH, but I have a lot of really smart data folks who can enable and support these activities, but the donate, domain knowledge and capabilities are all with agencies. So that's where all of this work has to begin and end. And MPH can be a portion of that in the middle to help support. Um, then I'd, lastly, I'd kind of just mention that make sure you keep all of your partners very integrated, You know, especially the subject matter experts that work closely with the data. This is a team effort, this is a team sport, and we're all gonna be successful together. One thing, and, and I'll just add. Oh, sorry. I'll just add that one, one thing that I think is is just as important as sharing what you're doing is um, for for a group like this is to talk about um, what they what they are not. And uh, we we find this a lot with the legislature and and in kind of talking about what MPH does to the legislature. Um, when we talk about big data uh, and we talk about you know people start to get concerned about what does that mean and and so. I think Darshan and his group have done a wonderful job of educating legislators on on what it is, what our goals are, what the objectives are, and that we're we're not creating a uh, a big brother data uh, hub within state government that's that's out to start tracking everyone and and everything. So now let's talk a little bit about how you've been able to fund the big data program. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so I mentioned earlier that 
when Governor Pence, um, when when Vice President Pence was governor here in Indiana, there was a large investment into a lot of the technology necessary to be able to help drive data-driven decisions. We were able to leverage those historical technology investments as part of this project, um, as there was quite a bit of infrastructure in place that we were able to, to re-leverage. Um, and the second thing I mentioned here is that, um, you know, per what Doug mentioned previously, this is a key priority for the state, a critical priority for the state. Governor Holcomb has established the, the yeah, opioids and the treatment of you know, opioids as one of its five pillars. And with that in mind, um, MPH has been able to leverage and cover the costs um, utilizing, you know, our operating budget that we that were uh, that were given from the from the legislature. Something that we touched on a little bit earlier that I do want to go back and revisit briefly is the hurdles that you had to overcome in order to launch the big data program. Can you care to comment on that? Uh, yeah, happy to. Um, maybe just give you one or two examples. Um, I would say the initial hurdle was, as I mentioned, MPH just started, um, and because we're a new agency, in some ways we needed to introduce ourselves <laughs> to different agencies that we were working with. And back to kind of uh, my point around how we're an agency to serve and not take over and be an enabler and supporter. That's a that's a key tenet, you know, of who MPH is and and how we're able to kind of support agencies and the great work they're doing. Um, once we actually got into the data, as you can imagine, um, there were other hurdles that that we started to identify when working with the data. Um, there are quality issues to overcome, and some of the data sources are really hard to consume without specialized knowledge. Um, maybe give you an example to make this real. Um, when we started working with some of the forensics lab data on confirmational substance tests, we learned that it was difficult to interpret all the specific chemical substance names. So what we tried to do is to democratize the data and make it more readily consumable for patient for sorry for people who are not forensics chemists, uh, which obviously most of us are not. Um, we need to do some enhancements. We normalized the substance names and then organized them by DEA grouping that they fell under. And as you can like one specific example of this was, um, a drug called MPPP, which I believe is like pronounced dethmethylprodine. Um, people don't need to know what MPPP is, but they do need to know it's an opioid. And if we're not count- if we're not counting that as part of the opioids, then obviously some of the counts are going to be off, and we're not going to be able to look at this problem, you know, effectively. So that's just kind of one very specific example of the data cleanup that needs to occur in order to be able to make sure that the folks who are who are looking and consuming this information can trust it. So, gentlemen, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners? Well, so I'll go back to uh, back to our website, nextlevelrecoveryin.org. Um, one of the things that we've spent a lot of time on is um, is reducing the stigma around this issue. And uh, if you if you go to the website, we have a, a, a humanizing campaign, an anti-stigma campaign that. Uh, that is, uh, know the opioid facts. And uh, most importantly, what we want people to know is that um, opioid use disorder is a chronic disease and that, uh, at least in Indiana, um, there is treatment. And uh, we know from many, many stories that we've heard and many, many people we've talked to that um, recovery is possible. And, and so I encourage anybody who knows um, of someone or, or has a loved one who is uh, impacted by this disease to uh, reach out and, uh, and, and seek treatment. 
Excellent. Well, once again, thank you both for joining us today. This has been uh, just amazing, the work that you've done. And I think that this will really make a big difference both in your state and hopefully others as well. Well, and thank you, Greg, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. We've been visiting today with Darshan Shaw, who is the Chief Data Officer of the State of Indiana and the Director of the Management Performance Hub. We've also been joined by Doug Hunsinger, who is the Special Assistant for Drug Prevention, Treatment, and Enforcement. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.